0: This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. If and so we're live with, well, dare I say, a legend himself, uh, New York Times bestseller. He's host of The Ruben Report, co-founder of Locals, and somebody who probably owes a lot of rent to some leftists because he spends quite a bit of time <laughs> in their mind. <laughs> How are you doing today, David?
1: Eric, I'm good. You know, legend. If I'm a legend, then legends ain't what they used to be. But I definitely do spend a lot of time rent-free in leftist heads. I'm I'm always amazed, actually, the amount of people that spend all day long watching my videos to selectively edit them and make it sound like I said the reverse of what I said, or they take something from five years ago to make it sound like I said it yesterday, or just like the series of people on YouTube and Twitter that devote all these accounts. It's like, man, listen, I think what I'm doing is pretty decent. A certain amount of people seem to like it, but the devotion that these people have to destroying me, I I almost admire the, the passion at some level, I suppose
0: yeah, what is it? And is it because you're seen as an apostate or a heretic because you were a young Turk? So you know you are worse than anybody on the planet because you were a traitor? whereas Ben Shapiro, well, he obviously has never been their friend,
1: yeah, I think that's it. They don't like an apostate. You know, most religions, most cults, don't like when someone walks, right? And mm. I would say that the the woke left and the progressive movement as a whole, at this point it basically is a cult. You have to agree with it on pretty much everything. You have to agree with it the second it arrives at any of its conclusions and if you don't, they will take you out. And what they hate more than just someone who walks is someone who thrives when they walk. So if I had just walked <laughs> and just sort of disappeared into nothingness, then then big deal, okay. But but I walked and by going to what I felt was true, by doing what I felt was right, by building bridges with The guy you just mentioned, the very scary Ben Shapiro and talking to, you know, Stanford economist Thomas Sowell and talking to Dennis Prager and Glenn Beck and a whole bunch of other people who I have some political disagreements that, you know, I'm happy to get into if you want. Um, They've all welcomed me into their world and we don't have to agree on everything. And that's what's so fascinating to me right now, because to me right now, you know, people think, oh, it's left, right. It's conservative versus liberal, Democrat versus Republican. It's basically woke versus conservative, meaning Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you're conservative, meaning you're a Republican Party member card carrying, but conservative, meaning you're trying to conserve what was the United States, the thing that we had just a couple of years ago that was so precious and great and still what I think is, you know, the jealousy of the world over and that everyone still wants to come here. I mean, that's what Biden was talking about today. Everyone still wants to come. Nobody wants to leave. All these people who are trying to destroy the country and rip it apart and take it down and everything else, they, they don't leave. You know, they, they keep telling us how horrible it is. They can't find a better place to go. Um, so I would say woke versus conservative in that the rest of us, if you're trying to conserve liberalism, as I'm trying to do, if you're trying to, uh, say, conserve libertarianism or just conserve conservatism, it's all of us versus those guys. And there's a lot of us. They're just very loud and they've got institutional power and the power of big tech and everything else.
0: Would you agree that the left-right paradigm has become a distraction anymore and it's really a top-bottom? Where you have yeah. authoritarianism up and libertarianism on the bottom, and you can even have people who are slightly leftist who might agree with right wingers if they believe in freedom. That seems to be a underlying pr- underlying principle.
1: Yeah. So look, I, I sense I know enough about your your views of the world, and and you obviously know enough about mine that we're both bottom up type people, and that we want people to be free. I want the average person. I want every legal citizen of the United States, you know, there's roughly 350 million people, something like that. I want all of those people to live under the exact same rules, and I want them all to have laws that treat them exactly the same. And then it's on you and your family and your local community and all of those things to get out there in the world and get what's yours. That's all freedom can offer you. And our founders set up a really wonderful system around that. Now, was it perfect? And were they perfect? Of course not. Have we done wrongs in the past? We had slavery, women couldn't vote, gay people couldn't get married, chi- uh, Japanese internment. Uh, there's a, a long history of things that we did wrong a- along the way, right? But we've always bent things to bring more justice. The, the arc of justice has always bent more in the way of freedom than in the way of tyranny. Now it's starting to turn in a lot of ways because of the people who are always screaming about how terrible the United States is. So I would say, yeah, it's sort of, you know, when I say woke versus conservative, that's very much in the cultural, Version of it, but I think another version of it, yeah, would be basically you're an authoritarian or a libertarian. You, I, it doesn't mean you're a carry carry member of the Libertarian Party. Sort of what I was saying yeah, before. That's problem too. <laughs> yeah. It, well, yeah. That I, which I'm happy to talk about too. I mean, that there's a huge mess over there. Um, but it doesn't mean you're a libertarian in that sense. It just means that you believe in individual liberty and that equality under the law gives you a chance to pursue that happiness thing. Or you believe if you just give enough power. To something above us, this is the authoritarian approach, obviously, right. if you just give enough power to government, if you just give enough power to Bernie Sanders, who has never accomplished anything, but if you just gave him enough of someone else's money and you just gave him the force of government to do it, he could fix all of your problems. So obviously I'm not that. So it's either you're you're for individual People making the best decisions for themselves and then associating and, and building up that way, or you're for top down. And, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, are for top down right now, because I think they're confused about what the issues actually are.
0: And fear. I mean, it's a great time for authoritarianism. Oh, yeah. About it. Everybody's afraid and they're looking for somebody, anybody. Tell me it'll be OK. Tell me I'll be safe. Give me guidance on what I need to do. Now, I kind of call myself a lazy libertarian, if that gives a spectrum of where I am, because I think that full-blown libertarians are whack jobs themselves. (laughs) When you get all the way to anarcho-capitalists, and I'll go in with Michael Malice sometime, hopefully, but he's such a troll that I don't know if he even really believes in that completely either. I think he's just poking. I personally think fundamentalism and purity is the biggest problem you can have. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah. Well, first off on Malice, I think he's one of the greatest political thinkers that we've got. And yes, he plays that role. You know, I always call him the Willy Wonka of politics. He plays that role of sort of troll, truth teller, jabber, you know, like the whole, he does all of it. He does all of it. And that's, and I think he's a great, he's truly a great political thinker. It's, it's just, he's really an enigma wrapped in a riddle wrapped in a YouTuber. It's, it's quite something. Um, look. I love libertarian ideas, and I love exploring that stuff with the ANCAP Mm -hmm. people. I love talking to Malice. I've had Brian Kaplan on, uh, who's an ANCAP guy. I've gone to many, you know, Ayn Rand events and libertarian events where all of the guys, how, how far can we really disassemble the state? And, you know, my feeling is, well, okay, we could really do that. And we'll sort of end up in some sort of version of Mad Max, which maybe in some way will be a little bit better than what we've got right now. But I do think what we have right now is pretty precious and pretty decent. And we just focus on the negatives. But but by and large, and I guess I would have to put the lockdowns aside for a moment to say that it's pretty decent because obviously there's a lot of authoritarian <laughs> stuff going on with that. So I'm happy to discuss that further, but I'd have to hedge a little bit because of the lockdowns. Um, hmm. But I love those ideas. But the reason I never say I'm a pure libertarian, I think is sort of what you're getting at here, which is that I do believe you need some level of government to somewhat keep the wheels on the system, to somehow make sure that if we've got a road here and the road's curving up there, to make sure that the paint is drawn in a way that if you're going at night, you're going to see it. That's you know, and I don't mean that literally because there, you could do that privately. You could have private roads that are doing that. I mean that sort of metaphorically, meaning you need some system to show you the guardrails of society. And I would say our capitalist democracy is the best of a bunch of unfortunate things to corral humans. So I sense we're probably in a similar spot on that.
0: Yeah. And I, I wanted to explore this with you because I I think it's kind of funny because First thing I note is everybody is trying to get you to say that you're conservative or you're still a classical liberal or or whatever. And I I think that maybe that's the biggest problem of all is trying to pigeonhole people into, okay, we got a label. Boom, you're covered. And the reason why I worry about that is like, you know, I think libertarians go too far. And there's things like um, uh, if I'm saying it right, thalidomide. Which uh, can have babies born without arms and legs. So the fact that we had regulations here and didn't allow that to get sold meant we had a lot of babies that were born in better shape than Germany and in Europe and things like that. So there are some standards that probably should come into place. I do think that we probably should pay for roads. It's not going too far because that is something that we all use in one way or another. Well, you may not drive on my road. I might get a package that goes on your road. Mm-hmm. So it does kind of factor but that's sort of where i wanted to explore and just get your feelings on that and i think i basically have it i want to pivot a little and be self-serving about interviewing because your mentor is a legend who you know sadly recently passed away yeah i'm larry king and i'm curious because one of my favorite quotes from him in his book was actually not his, but it was his buddy, Herbie Cohen, who said that, Larry, you're dumb. That's why you're so successful. And the fact that Larry does did no preparation of any kind and actually felt the less prepared he was, the more effective he was. Now, I've watched you since probably 2014 or so. So I saw that your very short period at... um or what was that? Yeah. Or TV. TV. Aura. Yeah. Or TV was after the Young Turks, yeah. and on. So that's about where I picked up on you is right about there, right after Young Turks. You seem to research a bit, but I'm not sure. What is your stand? How are you as an interviewer?
1: You know, I do a little bit of both. Uh, I, I've talked about this a little bit before because people usually ask me something about interview style, and it's a little bit of both. So for example, I always felt, and I remember watch, watching Larry when I was a kid, well before I knew him, I would watch him on CNN. And I always thought, oh, here's this decent guy. I, I just thought he was like this, and you know, he had the suspenders on, there was something sort of interesting, he had that deep, incredible voice. And he mm. would have, you know, what I what I loved about the show was, you know, it's like, it's 1988, I'm 12 years old, I would turn on the channel and it's like, he's got Magic Johnson on, on Monday He's got, you know, OJ Simpson the next day before he's a killer. Then five years later, the whole other situation, (laughs) but you know, then he's got, you know, Johnny Carson on the next night. He's got some lawyer on and then he's got like an animal guy. And I just thought, what, or, or Mm -hmm. he'll have a religious leader or, you know, President Reagan or whatever it might be. I just thought, what an eclectic mix. And this guy, he just gets to sit there and talk. And yeah, he never prepared that much. I mean, you know, when I got to know Larry professionally, which was one of the great joys of my life, you know, I would see he would have his blue cards in front of him. We actually when I was at aura, we actually shared the same studio. They would just reskin it differently for both of us, so they could literally just remove the walls in essence, but we were in the same physical location so sometimes uh his desk would still be there, and I'd see his cards, and it would just have a word or two on it, and he'd have five or ten cards and sometimes he looked at them some sometimes he didn't. What I've always found is. That you, well, first off, you need to be curious as an interviewer. You just have to be curious. And when I would go out to lunch with Larry, uh, the last time we went out to lunch, actually, a little bit before lockdown, um, we were at we were at the Palm Restaurant in Beverly Hills. It was one of his main stops, and it was like everyone there knew him. He was an absolute regular. He'd say hi to the busboys, say hi to the waiters, but he genuinely, the busboy would come by to to take his dish away. Hey, how you doing? How's the family? What's going on? He was truly curious about people. He was as curious. Uh, uh, you know, as to what the janitor in the building was doing, as to the guy that he was interviewing. So, as for preparation, my general philosophy is that if I'm curious, I'll get to the right questions. So, I try not to prepare that much, but I would say that there are some caveats to that. Sometimes, and I'm sure you know this, I mean, sometimes you're interviewing somebody, you're chatting with somebody, you need to know like a, spe- a specific chronological order of events. You need to know a specific moment that something happened or an actual quote or something like that. In which case I'll do a little bit more. You know, one of the things that has shifted for me is back when I started on aura back in, uh, 2015, I used to try at least, and I did it probably 90% of the time for the first year, read uh, whatever book the, uh, the guest Mm -hmm. was coming on for. And, and, you know, usually people are either promoting a book or they have a book in the past. And I would pretty much always read the book or at least a huge portion of it. These days, I really don't have time. My my producer prepares a little something for me. I'll always glance through some of them. I tried to, to read a little bit more, um, but just my days have become so crazy that I can't. So I would say it's really sort of case specific. Um, I'll give you one example. So when I interviewed Jordan Peterson a couple of weeks ago, who obviously I toured with and I and I know very well, and it's, obviously he's he's been through a, a tremendous amount in the last couple of years, um my feeling was well there's a lot of human stuff i want to talk to him about about our experience together and being on tour and what he's been through medically and health-wise over the last couple of years but i also want to go through the book there's 12 new rules let's hit these rules so i had those rules laid out in front of me so i think it's a little bit of push and pull it's sort of like who do you have on where are you at and, and where are you trying to get to and if you can kind of roughly figure out those things then you're okay
0: Do you prepare more with, let's say, a Stefan Molyneux versus uh, somebody else? Because I know you've commented before that he did make you feel uncomfortable, not necessarily as a person, but as a subject matter, uh, that you knew you were going to get hate for it. So did you put any kind of strategy in ahead or preparation to say, okay, well, if I'm going to interview him, I really need to go at it with this angle?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked that question because out of all the interviews I've ever done, I think that was the only interview. I'm 99% sure this is true. The only interview I've ever asked someone else for advice beforehand. I actually did make a call or two to some people, you know, in my inner crew and say, hey, you know, I'm interviewing this guy, you know, this race IQ thing. It's not really my thing, but, you know, he seems to be making some moves online. He's an interesting character, you know. Whatever it might be, I thought, but I, wanted, I really want to do this right. And it's not it's not a core, you know topic that I'm always discussing. I don't think I've ever discussed it on the show since. May, maybe once or twice in this very ancillary mm. fashion. So the thing that this guy seemed to spend most of his time on, the thing that he was sort of known the most for, uh, was not something that was really in my main wheelhouse. So I had to feel I had to figure out a way to approach it uh, in an honest fashion. And basically, I thought that the right question to ask, which I did ask several times in the interview was why do you care so much about this? Because that to me was what was, was sitting under race and IQ as a topic is like, why do you care about it so much? Now, look, people can look back at that interview and say that I did a fine job or a terrible job or, or whatever it might be. Uh, You know, it's one out of, I don't know. I've probably done thousands of interviews at this point. So (laughs) it's one out of that. Um, But I know that's one that people still try to get me on that. You sat down with this evil guy. And by the way, you know, he's since been kicked off Twitter. I, I'm not sure if he's on YouTube anymore. Um, so which is worse? What what that, what whatever it was that he was saying and whatever it was that was discussed in that interview or what has subsequently happened to his ability to communicate with the world? I think that's up for debate.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm definitely not against, I feel like you should sit down with almost anybody. I, I guess I'd have an exception if it was like, I would be just really uncomfortable and I don't think it would serve me personally very well i might not sit down with somebody but like uh the most extreme example right now probably is alex jones i would have him on in a heartbeat because Dude, like rogan has him on all curious. the time right <laughs> well he's interesting it's like there is so much there today it's like what are, are you there are you sane? are you crazy what are there other yeah. times that you feel genuinely uncomfortable or I'm going to throw out an example, or was it actually just so funny that it didn't bother you? And that's Candace Owens and Blair White.
1: Ah, uh, save Dave. Listen, I trended on Twitter. It's the first, I've only trended twice. And that was one of the times that was the first time, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was walking into when that thing happened. I certainly did not expect that, Um, you know, and look, hashtag save Dave trended on Twitter. I had, you know, these, these two, girls uh really going at it and you you know they there were so many memes about me and somebody did a curb your enthusiasm meme with you know the song playing with me just exasperated sitting back you know when i realized what had happened you know when we did the interview right. or, or the sit down whatever you want to call it that the battle royale that we did you know, I was like, man, what did I get myself into? But I enjoy what I'm doing, and I, I like the back and forth. And I basically, we finished up, and I was like, all right, it is what it is. And then I opened Twitter, and I see all hell breaking loose. <laughs> and then I start seeing all the memes and everything. And I was like, boy, you know, look, I guess at some level, this doesn't paint me in the best light. And perhaps I should have really, you know, laid the smack down more and, and commanded the, the audience more and the attention more. Yeah, it's possible. But in retrospect, like when you mention it to me just now, and it hasn't been mentioned to me in a while, it's sort of nothing but fond memories in a, in a bizarre sense. Because also, if you think about it this way, I mean, look, Candace basically went to take over the world after that. Like, that was just one of her very beginning moments, you know, and and uh, she exploded after that. I'm not exactly sure what's going on with Blair, but, you know, I've had a pretty good run since then. So, you know, it's, it's all just part of the, it's all the gestalt of all the stuff that gets you to where you're going to go.
0: Well, Candace is the other apostate.
1: Oh, yeah. She's she's a very, very dangerous apostate. You can't have a black woman leaving the left. I mean, come on now. And they they man, they despise her. They absolutely despise her. And I'm telling you, this is a great, a great, great person. She is a dear friend of mine. Um, People watch the friendship unfold. I mean, the first time I had her on the show, really, you know, I kind of put her on the map. I didn't even know what her name was till that day. We knew her as Red Pill Black. She was known as Red Pill Black on YouTube. And right before I sat down with her, I said to my guys, well, what? I can't call her Red Pill Black. What's her real name? they said, Candace, OK. And Candace actually stayed at my house, stayed over for dinner uh, till about midnight. We spent about 10 hours together debating, laughing, drinking wine, eating pizza. And we've subsequently become great friends. You know, I was at her wedding last year. She's great. She believes in what she's doing. She's fearless. I have never met someone as fearless as her. She's She's true. She's an extraordinary person, really.
0: And she had that effect on you. Obviously, Jordan Peterson had a major impact on your life, I I think. Yeah, yeah. Maybe more than any guest you've had, I'm not sure. And Larry Elder, I think, has had a pretty large impact. Are there any lesser-known guests? Because I I love to discover, you know, the not-talked-about treasures, if you will. Yeah. So very quickly on
1: those two, I would say Larry at an intellectual level you know, because of that moment, that systemic racism moment that also went viral that, you know, at first I was like, ah, seeing it on Twitter. Oh no, people are, you know, Larry Elder destroys libtard. But then within two days, it was like, oh, Ruben's not a bad guy. And then it allowed me to open my world. So it became a beautiful thing. And Larry and I are good buddies. Now, Jordan at a very personal level, because we toured together for a year and a half, his book was setting people straight and it helped me set my life in order. Um, so I, I'm just immeasurably, um, I'm in awe of Jordan truly. I mean, I think his intellect and humanity is, is one of a kind really like there aren't many people like him. Uh, were there other guests that affected me in that way? Um, you know, nobody's jumping off like sort of just like that. But I can mm-hmm. tell you, I've, I've gotten some really good friends out of this thing, which has been a nice bonus. So Douglas Murray, who I think is one of the greatest, clearest, cleanest thinkers, the, the author, uh, British conservative, who I just think is wonderful. You know, we've become very good friends. Peter Bogosian, you know, at Portland State, uh, associate professor of philosophy, who's just, you know, he's one of the last decent liberals trying to fight the woke left, uh, has become a good friend of mine. Michael Shermer, um, a whole bunch of other people. And then, you know, some of the guys that I mentioned before, like, you know, Prager was here uh, for dinner with his wife last week and, and that I've been able to sort of, I've met so many of these people who, you know, some let you down and some don't. And when you find the ones that don't, and then, and then there's that hand extended for friendship and you go, wow, we could be on this very cool, bizarre adventure together. That's pretty good.
0: I'm curious. And um, a lot of this is going to be me projecting on you. Because I see myself as you 20 years ago, before you even started. I'm so far different, (laughs) but it's still kind of the same road. Um, But I, you know, for example, I interview a lot of lawyers. I interview FBI agents. I interview a wide variety of people. But I myself am nothing but a middle-aged dude who does some IT work, things like that. Where do you place yourself on the spectrum? And do you find yourself being informed as you go?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the best part of doing this uh, of the interview part of what I do is that you get to sit down with incredible people. You know, it used to be mostly in person, but now even this like you get to talk to great people, Um, whether it was, you know, Richard Lewis, one of my favorite comedians that got to come to my house and come into my garage because that was my studio or Jordan Peterson, or Larry Elder, or just like the litany of other people, or, you know, even someone like John Kasich, you know, he's just sort of an average Republican, but he was a presidential nominee, and he came to my house, and there were, you know, security guards with him, and, you know, or Trump Jr. came, and Secret Service were there. Whatever it is, like, what what a cool adventure. And you can learn something from everyone. You don't always learn because they know what they're talking about. That's the best way of learning, right? Like, it's really (laughs) nice when someone, like, when someone really comes in and says something, that, that is true, that is really real and true and new and cool, that, that's the best. That's absolutely mm-hmm. the best. But you can also learn when someone comes in and you can kind of tell that they don't know what they're talking about or that they're just sort of giving lip service to things or something like that. Um, you know, I, without, uh, I could mention one or two like that, but I, I don't need to throw anyone specifically no, no, under no, the bus. Right. But, um, but, you know, that does happen. You know, you're interviewing someone and you're kind of like, boy, I don't think they have a really good handle on things. I think one of the things that's been a little bit of a challenge for me is as I've become much more outspoken in what I think, and you know, now I do a Mm -hmm. five day a week live show that's just direct to the camera. So not me interviewing somebody as I've done that more as an interviewer, it makes a little more challenging because to get back to Larry King, who you mentioned earlier, nobody knew what his Mm -hmm. feelings were about anything. Once you let your feelings be known, well, if I interview someone that really goes against those thoughts. I still want to treat them with respect and I still want it to be an honest interview. I'm not there to debate them. That's a different interview show. Now I've debated on my show. I've debated about abortion with uh, Ben Shapiro. I've debated about the death penalty with Dennis Prager. I've talked to people that are against gay marriage, like Bishop Barron. (laughs) It's not as if I expected Bishop Roger, uh, Robert Barron from the archdiocese in LA to suddenly rip off his frock and announce he was for gay marriage while he was on my show. And he got a lot of crap for it from, you know, say more right-leaning people. And I got a lot of crap for it from more left-leaning people. And that made me think this is a beautiful thing. And we've done subsequent interviews for, for both of our channels. So that, that's really nice. Um, but yeah, you'll, you'll learn from some and, and some you'll learn that they're not sure what they're talking about and everything else. That's that's the beauty. That's the beauty. But it does get a little more difficult as you're known for your thoughts. Because as that happens, you know, if someone comes on the show and says something that is, well, I'll give you a good example of this. I had Marion Williamson on the show. remember her. She was the Democratic candidate for sure. president and with the crystals and the whole thing. And mm-hmm. she came into my studio and she, it was very obvious. She was a collectivist. She believes in white collectivist guilt, generational guilt over slavery. I don't, I am not guilty for someone else's sins, much less someone else that was, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, much who I wasn't related to. And by the way, I'm not guilty for my father's sins and my child won't be guilty for my mm-hmm. sins. It's a very different way of looking at the world. She's a collectivist and I'm an individualist. Mm. But I felt I want to still treat her with respect. I want her to be able to be heard. So what I did was I stopped halfway through the interview and I said, hey, I just want to stop for a second and just say, you know, we have a fundamental impasse philosophically, which is that you're a collectivist and I'm an individualist. I just have to say that so that the audience watching isn't like, oh, Dave's just getting steamrolled by her because I still wanted to treat her. Uh, the way I would treat everyone else. Otherwise my show becomes, okay, I agree with the, I bring on the people I agree with and I treat them with respect. And then every time someone comes on that I don't agree with, it's a debate show.
0: And that doesn't seem right to me. Well, here's a touch of irony, bringing back up Michael Malice. Marianne Williamson's book had a profound effect on his life. I'm shocked and appalled. (laughs) Well, she made one particular statement. I guess she used to uh, work heavily with AIDS patients. Who were, you know, I mean, in the 80s, AIDS was a decence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was nothing worse. And she put it in their minds or came up with the statement of instead of thinking of AIDS like, oh, you're going to be okay. Everything's going to be perfect. Think about it as it could be a chronic condition like diabetes, and you might lose a foot and you might do this, but you can live for a long time like people do with diabetes with a chronic condition. And Michael Malice took that to be a way to think about North Korea instead of saying, oh, we're just going to, they're going to have freedom and all that. It's like, well, you can't just go from where they are now all the way there. But if you can get it to where they don't feel like, oh, they're going to get shot or they can never leave the country or, you know, it's just some minor things that would be an improvement. And I just thought it was really ironic because I can't think of two more opposite people in my mind in terms of collectivism and freedom. That that's super interesting to me.
1: And that also shows you why you should talk to people, right? Like why because mm. look, do I believe in all of the things that I wrote about in that book and that that we're talking about here and, and individual freedom and liberty and the founding documents of the United States and capitalism and free markets and human ingenuity and all of that stuff? Of course I do. But is that to say I can't learn anything from someone on the other side? No, well, of course I can. The question is, will those people talk to me? without trying to take me out, that's become harder and harder to accomplish.
0: Okay. And speaking of being around guests that, you know, are accomplished and things like that. Um, a friend of mine, which I know, you know, Viva Fry. Yeah. Um, I love Viva. He's great. I
1: love, I love seeing his star <laughs> rise, by the way, the guy's just an absolute all-star.
0: Not only is it the talent, he's probably one of the most generous humans I know, and has been kinder to me than anybody I could ever imagine on the, on the planet. So i just, I throw out all the praise in the world. Um, he wants to know what your biggest professional fear is.
1: Wow, that's a good one. My biggest professional fear. Um, well, I think for a long time, for a really long time for for the bulk of my career, it was am I ever gonna kind of get over the hump? You know you don't know what that hump is. I mean that's the thing you know when you're when you're doing it, whatever it is that you're doing, if you if you're following your path you want to be a great painter you want to be a musician you want to be an interviewer whatever it is you want to be there's always the the striving for it the the thing in the distance you're trying to get to and and the irony of course is you never fully get there because once you get there wherever there is well then there's another star in the distance and another star that's sort of the that's the journey of life that's the beautiful fun thing I would say for for many many years when I wasn't making much money and I was struggling and I had all the you know years of struggling as a stand up and times when I was broke and in debt and you know I was eating ramen and all, all that stuff and I was on the road doing stand up and like you know is this ever going to happen am I ever going to get on television or or anything or even then you know when I left uh the young turks and then we were at aura And we were doing really well, but the network wasn't doing well. And it was like, well, is the network going to fall apart? And then I'll be destroyed again, you know, taken out. And then, um, you know, when I left Patreon eventually, which ultimately led me to starting Locals, it was like, all right, I'm leaving Patreon. Am I about to screw my whole career again? Well, as time's gone on and I've done the right thing and I've built a good team around me and we've made uh, smart financial decisions and all that sort of stuff. I do feel like I'm over that hump. I, I don't feel like it's gonna go away tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like I suppose yeah. I could say something ridiculous in this interview and you know they the cancel people <laughs> will the mob will come after me, but you know, I'm my own boss. So the chances that I call myself into my office to fire me are pretty slim. You know, that would have to be a pretty egregious uh thing for Dave to walk in and Dave, well, you're you're out, Dave. Um so so <laughs> I think the model. Yeah, on your right. Pirate ship. Yeah. You, well, look, you build the ship, you build the ship and and we've built a really nice, tight, lean operation here. And that's what I'm really so proud of. That That's not really the answer to the question there, but I would say getting over, getting to the point where the fear of like, it, it's all going to disappear tomorrow, or I'm going to be broke tomorrow or that sort of thing that I'm, I wake up without that sort of existential angst anymore. And that allows me to to move forward and do the types of things that I want to do, whether it's talking to the camera, doing interviews, being interviewed, whatever it might be. And I think when you can get over that, boy, you can breathe for a second. Because I think in, in probably most of my years from 20 to 40, I'm 44 now, but in most of 20 to 40, there wasn't a lot of breathing. It was just go, 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 go. And I think now it's like, all right, we did something pretty decent here. We've built something nice. i'm 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 happy. I'm content. I still want to work. I'm working hard. I'm doing other projects.
0: And now let's see what's next. At what point did you feel uh, my best term I could think of established in the sense that you know because everything is so precarious, you're I, I imagine even now you still get nervous on some interviews. But when did you feel like, okay, I'm a no quantity. I'm I'm not going to go completely away. Yeah.
1: You know, I don't know that there's a good answer to that because partly, partly it never goes away. That's sort of what I mean about the hump. It's like, I am, I know, I know sort of, um, I know sort of at the granular level, it's like, I'm over the hump. I'm okay. Now I've got some money. We've got a nice business. Like we have, we have built this in a sensible way that it can rattle the, you know, survive the storms and all of that sort of thing but I think it always kind of sits back there. Like for me, at least it's always sits back there. Like, is this real? Like, did I actually, like when people come up to me and say such nice things or they send me things or write things, it's like, the truth is I'm just a regular person like everybody else. Like you're Mm -hmm. just a regular person. I'm just a regular person. We're all on our little adventure. But one of the cool things is when, when you do these types of things that we do and you can affect people and then people come up to you, Um, you know, we did a a live event for my locals community, uh, at a bar here in LA a couple weeks ago, about a hundred people showed up. People had not been out in a long time. A couple people had tears in their eyes just to be out and about and see other people and thanking me for building a community and, and talking about politics in an honest way. And it's like, man, when I got home, like I felt something deep because it was like, Whoa, like these, these are good people and people are alone. Now people are, People are broken and afraid and worried about the world. And if I've had a little something to do with with helping them out through that, you know, helping them weather that storm, then then that is pretty great. But but the piece of like, oh, could it all go away tomorrow, or mm-hmm. or am I legit? Something like that. Like I think it just kind of always it always sticks with you a little bit.
0: Well, and uh, as you know, there's enough people attacking you. I'm sure that give you humility. It's like if you ever feel like oh, I'm unstoppable. Be like, well, hold on. Let me go check out this channel. They're, they're, nope, they still hate me. <laughs> you know, the, the truth is I don't watch I don't watch any of those
1: things. Like, I know that they exist. I know that they exist, obviously, because, you know, they, they can just come across my computer one way or another, but I, I don't watch any of them and I have no time. I have no time to watch the things that I want to watch, much less the things that I don't want to watch. But But, you know, I sort of said this before, but this idea that these people are so incessantly obsessed with what I'm doing <laughs> even if, now, first off, they do so much selective editing, it's crazy, but even, you know, because people do send me some clips, so I don't sit there and watch, but every now and again, you accidentally see something. But even if I was doing, you know, all this bad stuff, it's like, man, mm-hmm. if you think I'm the problem in society, like, you're, your guns are pointed the wrong way. That's And that is a strange thing about YouTube also, I've really noticed this. There are a ton of lefty channels devoted to taking mm-hmm. out people on the right. I don't really know of any channels on the right devoted to taking out those lefty people. Now, I'm sure some exist, but I I don't know. But there's an exceptional amount of them uh, on the left that are just spending all day long trying to get clicks off the people on the right. And by the way, when they do this, this is just because they want clicks off my name, right? Like They're not not doing it because they're so wonderful and they're trying to cure the world of the evils of Dave Rubin, is that if you put
0: Dave Rubin's name in the YouTube thing, you're going to get some clicks. Right. Now, and in fairness, I'm interested in how you get over it because, you know, I fortunately haven't had a lot, of, but I mean, you got a hit piece by Der Spiegel, another by New York Times. I mean, those are hard to ignore, especially yeah. if they're genuine hit pieces that are just flat out lying. Well, in
1: retrospect, I'm That's glad that they accurate. happened. Yeah. In retrospect, I'm glad because, you know, that Der Spiegel one, uh, which I wrote about in, in my book, actually, this right. guy comes from Der Spiegel. It's the, it's the largest news magazine in Germany. Um, I had, I had heard that it's you know a little, little left-leaning and a little shady mm-hmm. or whatever, but I was like, this seems like a great opportunity. Let's give it a go. He wanted to spend basically a full workday with me from like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And he brought you a know, camera crew and, and the photographer and assistant and everything else questioning me throughout the day. I sat and talked to the guy for a while. He watched me do, I think, three interviews that day. I usually don't do three in a day, but that day I happened to, I happened to do three interviews. One of them was a live stream. Excuse me. And then I did a uh, event at USC that night, a free speech event with the Ayn Rand Institute people. He writes the most ridiculous hit piece that I'm the I think he said um, uh, the grand master of the alt right. Something to that effect. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and I have I have like something like he has TV good looks, which makes the alt right seem palatable. Yeah, something like that. Now, meanwhile, all my interviews were about freedom and liberalism and he watched all that stuff. And by the way, you want to know the mark of a truly bad person? He did not quote me directly once in that interview because in mm. Germany, there is a law that if you are going to quote someone in a magazine or a newspaper, you have to run the quotes by him. So he sits with me for hours. I was completely mm. open with the guy. Uh, and then, of course, the photo that they used, that was on the cover of the German magazine and on the website is me sitting in my living room. My arms are out on the couch like this. I'm leaning back on the couch and we have a huge American flag there. So he, it's like he's trying to paint me as some like ultra nationalist racist, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then and then, of course, it ends with that. We do this event at USC and it ends with and now as the as the guards with uh, the armed guards close the doors. Rubin begins to speak something to that effect. And the guards were there not because they were threatening anybody. They were there to make sure that we weren't threatened. I mean, the, the whole mm. thing was ridiculous. I and mean, yeah, The New York Times is called the alt right. And, but but those battles. And it still happens, by the way, but those battles, they strengthened me so that now when it comes, when I see the hit pieces here and there, you know, they they still come here and there. It's like, ah, oh, look at you guys. You're doing it again. You're doing it again. And by the way, a lot of people have woken up to it too, which is nice.
0: You know, isn't that cute?
1: Yeah. That oh, cute? look at oh. you. Oh, congratulations, <laughs> Daily Beast. You did it again. Oh, look. Oh, Mother Jones with a hit piece. What are we going to do?
0: <laughs> well, and. Does that kind of give you some credibility in a twisted way, too? And I hate to say there's like sort of a punk rock backlash to it, but it's like, okay, well, if they hate me, then uh, I must be having some kind of an effect. Yeah, well, there was
1: one. I forget what it was just a few weeks ago. Finally, somebody called me far right. And I think it was The Guardian. I'm I'm 99 percent sure it was The Guardian. And they used to call me far, far right all the time, but they hadn't done it in about a year. And I saw one just two or three weeks ago where they call me far right. And I even tweeted out, I said, boy, it's like the greatest hits. Like, I kind of felt good. It was like, oh, they didn't forget about me. Like, yeah. Now, what they didn't do, of course, in the article, they didn't mention any of my far right positions. They just (laughs) said far right. Uh, Maybe it was the Independent, actually. I'm forgetting which one it was. It was an article that was written about Rita Panahi, who is an Australian commentator who I absolutely love, who's really an old school liberal. So I guess can call her a modern conservative, something like that. But it was about how she talks to these scary people, including far right YouTuber, Dave Rubin. But then they don't. All right. So then lay out one far right position I hold. And of course they don't. And I tagged the the lady who wrote it on Twitter and I asked her and she didn't respond. It's, it's just, it's rinse and repeat with these people.
0: Shocking. And now you left Patreon and I want to definitely get into locals and I've got some questions from locals. Sure. locals. I want to personally thank you for because um, I don't I don't know if you're aware. My channel literally got ripped off of yeah. you. completely, yeah. lock, stock, everything. So it was my entire account was vaporized. <laughs> it wasn't. Uh, I,
1: I, it was, I know. But... <laughs> I know the story at least at an ancillary level, and it doesn't surprise me. And that's exactly why we built locals. We want people to have digital homes. That's it. I I want to build something that is my home. And then you know what? We, that's what we did. And then we said, okay, how about other people have homes? So Eric, you got your home. And guess what? What you do there has nothing to do with me. Crazy, right?
0: It works. It works. Now you were working with uh, Jordan Peterson at first, right? And he kind of wound up doing Think Spot, and you did Locals. I was wondering why you didn't um, merge the two together.
1: Yeah. So there's a lot there. And I, I can only just for legal purposes, because there's still some things going on. I can only tell you so much. But um, in essence, when, when we both left Patreon, we did it together. Mm-hmm. We announced uh, t- uh, via two YouTube videos that we were doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we said, okay, we're gonna build something. And he had said, oh, you know, I've got this tech that I've been building for a while. It wasn't really for this, purposes, uh, this purpose of, of crowdfunding and monthly subscriptions, but I think it could kind of work. But we both said, and you can watch those videos from, from now mm-hmm. it's about two years ago, a little over two years ago. I think it was January of 2019. You can find the videos where we both said, you know, there's probably a lot of ways to skin a cat here and we want to hit it from every angle. So Jordan's team started working on ThinkSpot and I was involved. And I'll tell you a really wonderful thing about Jordan in just a moment. I was involved and we were sort of guiding it in a certain way. But I felt that building it the way more so we've built locals was the more appropriate way or just what I felt was better for what I wanted to do. Meaning community first, not a sort of wider platform. I wanted to build an app first. These were just minor technical differences. By the way, not really that I had with Jordan, but just some of the team members. And Jordan mm-hmm. and I were completely upfront. There was no tension there. I actually put in a whole bunch of money. It was the biggest investment I had ever made into ThinkSpot. And mm-hmm. about a day or two later, Jordan, that was when it was announced that you know he was, he was ill and not doing well. And basically his guys said to me, look, he's not gonna be able to be involved in this thing. And Jordan, to his credit, made sure that they gave me my money back. Because I said, look, if mm-hmm. Jordan can't, if Jordan can't be involved in this, I can't do it right now. I want to focus on, on the other thing that I'm working on. Jordan did not have to do that. I mean, the money had been wired. The documents were signed. That That is the, a great credit to, to my good friend and a good man, Jordan Peterson. And um, so I would wrap that up by saying, you know, so he basically had to step away for the last year and a half. You know, we went full steam on Locals. So Locals is having a tremendous amount of success. And uh, by the way, I, I will drop some info here, but on Monday there will be a massive announcement that will be a game-changing announcement to the future of locals mm. that um, is happening right this moment. But I can't say more than that right now. <laughs> um, all that being said, you know now that Jordan's reemerging, we are talking. I'm talking to his team. We're trying to figure out what the touch points could be. There could there be you know some situation where we start working together on some things and things like that. So just to be very clear, there is literally no tension there whatsoever. Um, mm. I always believe that. And I really mean this like anyone else that right now wants to create a competitor to locals. It's like, go ahead and do it. And if you do it better than me, then that's going to up our game or we'll merge or we'll fight or whatever. But that will all make a better product. I really do believe that. And uh, the more, the merrier.
0: Coincidence. I have a super chat from Robert Barnes. Uh Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Barnes, not Barnes. What are and I think it's a very legitimate question because we've got uh, in the news right now, Trump is going to create his own social platform. Essentially, that's what's being said what are some of the obstacles, financial, legal, and technological, that he's going to face when trying to start his own platform?
1: He has, he has extraordinary, I covered this on my show a couple of days ago, he has extraordinary stuff that he's going to have to deal with. Okay, so on the technological front, decentralized servers, right? Decentralized storage, the idea that Amazon just won't be able to blow up the servers, or that if Trump buys a server farm, whether it's in Utah or in Europe, that they don't just cut the cord or blow up Mm -hmm. the building or God knows what these people could do. So he's going to have a huge problem on the, on the server front. He's going to have a payment processor front problem because if the payment processors, if say Stripe or whatever, whatever payment, you know, there's a series of payment processors. If they won't work with Trump or a Trump associated product, well, he's got a whole bunch of problems. Now there's answers on both. They're not perfect answers yet, but decentralized storage, it's starting to come Mm -hmm. around. There's a lot of really cool stuff happening decentralized payments. I mean, this is what blockchain is, right? Like there's a lot of interesting things that can be done with crypto. We're, we're working on all of this stuff. And again, we've got some announcements coming on Monday. So there's a lot of cool things happening on those fronts. Trump has other problems because the focus on what he's going to build is, you know, we've been able to fly under the radar at some level, even though I'm a public mm-hmm. person, I'm not, I'm in this fight, um, you know, I'm not Trump. So it's like the focus on what he built. On top of that, you know, getting the right people, I think is going to be very difficult for him. I can tell you this, as we've tried to raise money for locals and we've had a lot of success and things are going really well, you know, any, it always comes up. Well, are you a right wing network? Are you, are you a Trump friendly group of people? But, uh, mm. but, meanwhile, as you know, more of the coordination for the January 6th Capitol riots w- took place on Facebook than any other platform. Yet they blew up mm. Parler because Parler was the outsider, right? Mm. Parler got money from, I think uh, a family, a, an oil family in Texas, if I'm not mistaken. They didn't no, get still a kind cond- of... It's the yeah, Mercer um, family, but I'm not, is Mercers, that, am I, yeah. am I mistaken on that?
0: Yeah. Mercer's and get, it happened to Gab two, uh, two years prior with the synagogue shootings.
1: Right. So what, what is it? How yeah, do um, the Mercers make their money? Am I, am I
0: mistaken on how? they could be. I, am not sure. All oh, I know okay, is okay. they have a lot. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But, but the point is that they were outsiders to the Silicon Valley money. It mm-hmm. made it very easy for the Silicon Valley guys to like, yeah, kick them out of the app store, blow up the servers. Like they're, they're not on our team. Right. It's sort of a mafia tactic, like the new guys in town. No, he's not moving in on our, our territory. That, that That's not going to work. Right. So so Trump will have all those problems. And that, you know, uh, again, can you hire the right people? Can you get the right people around it? And then can you get can you onboard the right people? Now, I understand or from what I understand, Mike Lindell, my pillow guy, he's been working on something. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's all look, I want Trump to do it and keep rattling the cage and keep keep breaking this stuff up we need some of this big tech stuff to fail um mm-hmm. and does does Trump even have the money like is he going to self fund it and where is he going to mm-hmm. locate the company like there's so many things uh, but again i when i heard it you know it maybe it doesn't sound real but truly as as now i guess a tech guy i heard the news and i was like great great more more chances for us more. you know the more of us that there are they can't take out everybody they just can't take out everybody. So let's just get more people. And who knows, maybe Trump's thing comes along and for some, you know, by some miraculous thing, they came up with a solution that we couldn't figure out or we came up with a solution that they couldn't figure out. And that's the beauty of the
0: human mind. Now, you will also agree, though, that the network effect is still invaluable to what you do. For example, of course, um, I'm on Locals and I benefit by the fact that uh Viva Fries on Locals. And a lot of his audience comes over to me. I'm a much smaller, you know, version of it. But they're saying, okay, well, if I go to locals, there's two channels now that I like. And then hopefully it'll be three or four or five. So the more creators we encourage to come on, the more incentive there is for people to join because there's a wider, you know, variety or a more diverse timeline, I guess you would
1: yeah well, of course, and you know this is one of the challenges that we have right now and we're we're having every debate internally about this is okay well if you subscribe to Eric, you put a couple bucks mm-hmm. in for Eric and you subscribe to Dave and you subscribe to to Viva and Barnes and Scott Adams well suddenly you're now you got you're at 25 bucks a month and you got five mm-hmm. creators now that's kind of cool you're you're in their worlds and you know you can communicate directly with them and all that kind of stuff but you know we don't want to make this that to to get all your locals, creators right. that it's going to suddenly cost you 200 bucks a month, which, you know, by the way, that's what cable used to cost people. 150 bucks yeah, a month. So you'd have a gajillion channels. Yep. What we wanted to do first was let's build digital homes for people. Let's build Eric, his home. Dave's going to have his home. Scott Adams going to have his home and and everyone can treat that differently. And now what we have to do is figure out what the bundling option is on that. If people want to be in the bundle. So if you and and Viva and Robert want to come together and be like, you know what? Uh, each I don't, I don't know off the top of my head what you guys all charge per month, but let's say you charge five mm-hmm. and they charge five. But you know what? If people subscribe to both, we'll do it for eight dollars a month and we'll take a little mm-hmm. bit less because now together we're stronger. Well, then that can begin the bundling process. And, and then let's say, well, there's a creator that comes in who's a little smaller than both of you guys. And he goes, you know, if you let me in, I'll give mm-hmm. you half of what my subscription is because I want to be in your network. Mm-hmm. So it's a very cool free, associ- uh, free association libertarian idea on how to build out networks. And I think what's really cool about this is we're building television networks with no overhead. I mean, if you yeah. took the top 10 creators on on Locals right now, Tulsi Gabbard, too, and, and Greg Gutfeld, we've got better talent than most cable channels. And we've got other tricks coming that I can't tell you right now, but there's some very cool things happening.
0: Well, and those partnerships also would increase, I'll just say the stickiness. There's probably a better term for it. But people are less likely to leave if five channels that they're you know paying the one fee for are there because it all we kind of you know have our ebbs and flows depending on what's happening at the time. We can't always have A plus content. We're not all Dave Rubin, you know. Does Dave Rubin <laughs> always have A plus content? Yeah, he's pretty close. You know, the rest of us are human, so we we have to kind of go. Okay, well, that, good, but not necessarily uh, you know as strong. Now, um. I've got a super chat here from Ziggy Shrug wanting to know when are you moving to Florida? I know that's a popular question.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I got my director right here. He just moved here from Seattle. He's he's not ready to go yet. He's he's just huh. enjoying he's just starting to enjoy the sun sunshine here. Look, look, everyone knows my feelings about Florida. Florida is open. I think Ron DeSantis is probably the best governor we've got in the United States right now. I think he's also ready for the fight, which the fight is coming to him if it isn't at his doorstep already. I've always liked Florida. My folks have a little condo in Florida, so we used to go down there to vacation. I mm. like warm weather. I could probably even deal with the summers in Florida, which I know could be pretty brutal. Most of my family is back East Coast. The taxes are lower. Um, we're probably gonna move locals down there regardless of whether I stay or not. We're gonna move our, our mm. team down there and our, our offices down there, obviously for tax purposes, but also just business is better and tech is moving to Miami. As you know, the, all the they're all fleeing the dystopian land of San Francisco and they're all moving to Florida. So Florida's in my future for sure. Um, you know, I've got two businesses now I've got things that I would need to wrap up here. And by the way, and I've said this before, you know, I'm really hoping that this Gavin Newsom recall works because we've got the 2 million signatures and it's like, you know, if we can recall the guy and it's not, I don't have some grand illusions that we're going to get some great real libertarian governor of, uh, of California, but you know, Ronald Reagan was once the governor of California. So a California conservative does, does exist. There it mm-hmm. are people that are fiscal Californians, you know, fiscally conservative Californians. So miracles do happen. So I want to fight. I'm going to fight tooth and nail to get rid of that guy. And then let's see what happens. And then we'll reevaluate. So if you want to pick this up in a couple of months, I'd be happy to do so.
0: OK, well, last time was Gray Davis and we got Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I guess was a slight improvement over. It Gary. was
1: a slight improvement, right? I mean, it, he was a conservative of sorts, right? I think he probably cut budgets a little bit, but they, you know, they all do a lot of spending too. It's all a mixed bag. but. But I think it's probably fair to say that most Californians right now, if, if their heads were on straight, which it's very unclear to me sometimes, they would probably <laughs> say Schwarzenegger would be more moderate than Gavin Newsom.
0: Oh, oh by, by, by far. I, don't, yeah. I can't see a, a, a real hardcore conservative being governor, but you might get a centrist that leans right and at least it can be fiscally conservative. Maybe that'll fly.
1: Yeah. I I think that's possible. Look, I had Adam Carolla on my show. He said he would consider it, but you know, I know Adam, he's got a really good life and a lot of dough and a gorgeous house. I I don't know that he's going to do it, but Rick Rennell, you know, I think he could possibly do it. And he's, he's born and bred in California, former ambassador to Germany, of course, and acting secretary of national intelligence. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy and a good man and, and wants to keep this state in order. So, you know, maybe there's a chance you never
0: know. It's a long shot. Now, um, One, I guess, last question, because I know you're getting short on time here. Do you foresee that there will be tours again?
1: Oh, I hope so. Right now, so we're working on a Florida tour for me for supposed to be mid-April, but it's getting short on time because there's just so many logistical problems, even as the states are opening up with rules that are changing every day and how many people can be inside and everything. You know, the thing that I missed most out of 2020, um, Mm -hmm. beyond seeing my family, uh, which finally in the last couple of months I've been able to see a little bit more. Um, I actually haven't seen my parents since this whole thing began. I'm gonna see them for the first time next week, which is just wow. crazy, just absolutely crazy. Um, but the thing that I miss most is sort of in this orbit was that, you know, my book came out on April 28th. I had a six-week tour. We were gonna do about 30 cities in the US, and then I was gonna go to Europe, I was gonna go to Australia we were going to work on Japan and Israel. I mean, I was really going to spend a year back out on the road like I did with Jordan. And I loved every second of that. I loved the travel. I love going to the places, eating the different foods, meeting the people. I love the meet and greets. I, as I said on my interview with Jordan a few weeks ago, it was a dream. When I think back to that year, it's like, man, did that really happen? It was so awesome and so cool. So I was really looking forward to that. So I can't wait to get out there because you know, we've been reduced to this thing. And, th- you know, this is mm-hmm. nice. It's nice talking to people on Skype, but it's not like talking to people for real. And there's nothing. There's nothing like getting up in front of a crowd and My sharing sense. that live moment and feeling the laughter and feeling the love. And, and if you're with Jordan, feeling feeling the pain in the room and then mm-hmm. and then the release of the pain at the end. And, and that's why I went on tour with him, basically, because I would make people laugh at the beginning. He'd do about an hour and a half. And then I'd make people laugh again at the end with him. We we'd do a Q and a at the end and that way it felt holistic. It felt full. So I can't wait to get back out on tour. I think it's going to be messy for another, like it could, it could be more than a year still where certain mm. States will be okay. Florida is going to be all right. You'll be able to tour in Texas, you know, a couple others, but you know, are they going to do anything? In, what are you going to do? I'm going to do a 25% comedy club in, in California. That's ridiculous. Like that, that mm. that's a comic or a performer's nightmare. You want to be in sold out rooms. It's not just because it's not just because you want the money though. It's really not. It's it's because you want that freaking energy that when when you mm-hmm. get a laugh you or you do something that room explodes and you can feel it and everyone can feel it. But instead you're gonna do comedy in front of ten percent of the people sitting sixteen <laughs> feet away from each other and they can only have one drink or you know because if they get drunk they might get closer. It's like it's all bananas. So we'll see. But I, I I can't wait to get back out on tour whenever it happens.
0: Well, you need the crowded room too because of the influence of the people like. Right? The joke yeah. is going to go harder if half the room is laughing, it's contagious and it goes over. But if there's enough space, it's sort of like a forest fire. That's not going to spread. It's got too many breaks along the way. You know, one you of know, the coolest things minutes. that one mm. of
1: the coolest things that I experienced with Jordan is that, you know, because we did so many amazing theaters all over the world. And the last show that we did together um, was in Sydney at the Sydney Opera House. And I did not know. I mean, most of the people watching this can picture the Sydney Opera House. If you Google it, I mean, it's right on the water there it's out on the boardwalk it's the most cool architecturally interesting sort of looks like a clam like really fascinating building i did mm. not know till we did that show till the, till we did the mic check that it was a theater usually they would call it a theater in the round meaning the audience is around you in a circle but this was really a theater in a square so you had the audience that way and you were sort of in a mm. box they around you and i got a couple of huge laughs that night and to feel laughs hit you from every which oh, way because oh, what you're talking about is yeah Cause usually you do a laugh and then it comes back here. You, you know, you get a reaction. It comes back you this way, but to get it every which way. Oh, it was just awesome. Goose, just Goose. awesome.
0: Yeah. That had to be goosebumps. Oh, it was, it was
1: <laughs> wild. It was, it was just like,
0: can this be real? I don't know. Well, that's a perfect happy note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on and
1: doing what you do. Eric, it was my pleasure and I'm thrilled that you're on locals and that you're finding success and that we've offered you a little bit of an oasis in, in this madness. And, uh, I hope anyone watching will, will check out what we're doing with locals because we're, we're trying to fix this thing. You know, everybody just complains all day, but we're trying to do a little more than complain, you know?
0: Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at erichunley.com. See you next time.